And as uh, Richard mentioned uh, earlier on, uh, we're continuing our um, sermon series in the book of Acts uh, this morning. And this morning we come to look at Acts chapter 25 and verse 1 to 22. So if you were here last week, you may remember that at the end of uh, last week's passage, we left Paul in prison in a place called um, Caesarea, which is on the coast about um, 60 miles or so northwest of Jerusalem. And you remember that the uh, last verse of the uh, preceding chapter is this. So when two years had passed, uh, Felix, uh, he was the Roman governor, was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, uh, he left Paul in prison. That really provides the context for our passage and our our reading um, this morning. So uh, Paul has been uh, in prison for over two years and uh, Governor Felix has been replaced. And so I'm now going to ask Jessica, um, if um, she could come up and uh, read God's word for us. Thanks, Jessica. The reading will be from Acts uh, chapter 25, verses 1 to 22. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. After spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day, he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared, You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice arrived in Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it is not the Roman custom to to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. 
When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. I was at loss how to investigate such matters, so I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, "I would like to hear this man myself." He replied, "Tomorrow you will hear him." Well, um, thank you very much, Jessica. So then, one of my、um, favourite movies is、uh, the one that is there on the screen. It's called "O Brother, Where Art Thou." Now I'm sure that、uh, many of you here、uh, won't have actually watched this movie. It's a rather old now, and it's at least、uh, more than、um, 20 years old.、Uh, but it's basically about、um, three convicts who escape from a chain gang in the USA, and、uh, they then go and look for hidden treasure.、And、it's a really great film, which is really well directed. It's really well、uh, written, and、uh, has some really great period music as well. And fairly early on in that movie,、um, after they've escaped, the three main characters are hiding in a barn. They're sort of hiding upstairs in a barn in a hayloft.、Um, they're hiding there from the law enforcement officials when they are betrayed by one of their relatives. And in the middle of the night,、uh, the main character,、uh, who's played by George Clooney,、um, wakes up and he says, "We're in a tight spot. We're in a tight spot."、Um, you can、um, see the sort of、um, screenshot there. And sure enough, they are in a really tight spot.、Uh, the barn where they are hiding is completely surrounded by police who have dogs and guns, and the police are also in the process of actually burning the barn down in order to kind of try and force them to actually come out. And then George Clooney says again, "We're in a tight spot. We're in a tight spot." And if you want to know how they escape, then you'll need to watch the movie for yourself. <laughs> Anyway, when we come to our reading this this morning, it is the Apostle Paul who finds himself in a really tight spot. You may remember from the last week that he was delayed. He was delayed in、um, Caesarea, but now he's actually in a really tight spot. And as we, we will see, his only way out is to appeal to、um, Caesar and to be taken to Rome、uh, as a prisoner of the Romans. Yet. What we will see is that, in spite of all this, that God is still in control, and the gospel is still continuing to advance through Paul,、uh, in spite of、uh, all the more sort of legal wranglings and、uh, plots against Paul. Now, the、uh, passage we're looking at this morning has、uh, some of the same themes that、uh, all of these chapters in the book of Acts do. So there is going to be a degree of、uh, repetition this morning.、Uh, there's also some new elements.、Uh, As well, but actually, in the midst of all this, I think there's some really great key lessons for us about who God is and how He works, and also how we are to relate to Him as His people. And so, whether you find yourself in a tight spot this morning or not, I think what we will see is that、uh, we can continue to look to God in the midst of difficulties,、um, knowing that He is in control and that He is continuing to work His purposes out for us. We're going to focus, especially on verses one to twelve. Uh, and I would like to look at some of the different ways、uh, that we see God at work、uh, in this passage. And、uh, number one, there on your sheets is God's is Paul's rescue. 
I think the application here for us is to keep on trusting in God's sovereignty. To keep on trusting in God's sovereignty. So we saw last time, uh, we've just looked at it, chapter 24, verse 27, that Governor Felix uh, left Paul in prison uh, for more than two years. Uh, Then we read that Felix was replaced by a new Roman governor, somebody called Portius Festus, uh, around 60 AD. Now, we know hardly anything about this man, Portius Festus, but one thing we do know is that he only ruled for two years and then uh, actually died uh, in the job, Um, and also that he was a man of action, which is, I think, what we really see here. Uh, So we can see that in our passage in verse 1. He's only been in the province, he's only been in his office for three days when he immediately heads off to Jerusalem uh, in order to meet the Jewish leaders there. Then if you look a bit further down in verse 6, he only spends eight or ten days in Jerusalem before returning to his headquarters in Caesarea. Uh, And then he immediately, the very next day, convenes the court um, to begin Paul's trial. And so he's a real man of action. Unlike Felix, you remember last week, he, he delayed and he procrastinated as long as he possibly could. Festus is into action. He wants to get things done. And right at the top of his list is this troublesome prisoner who has been left over from the old regime, uh, a man called Paul. And so first of all, we see a deadly plot. So Festus goes up to Jerusalem there in verse 1. Um, In verse 2, we read that the Jewish leaders, they probably know that Paul is still alive in Roman custody. They don't like that. They don't like all the ministry that Paul has been doing, even while he's been in prison for the last couple of years. And so they make another attempt to deal with him for good. Their plot is exactly the same as the previous time. Uh, They're not particularly original. Uh, They plan to ask him to be transferred to Jerusalem, and then they'll ambush him on the way and have him killed I think it's another reminder that people's hostility to the gospel is often not rational. The chief priests and the Jewish leaders are educated people, probably the most uh, educated people in their community, but yet their hostility to the gospel and its preachers is so great that they quickly resort to physical violence. And so we see a deadly plot. Uh, There's also an unwitting rescue as well. So we see uh, Festus's response to them then verse 4 and 5 um, Festus answered Paul is being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there soon again he's a man of action um, let some of your leaders come with me and if the man has done anything wrong they can press charges against him there and so hopefully you can see that Festus basically unwittingly um, foils their plan and uh, unwittingly rescues Paul uh, now of course it's possible that he knows that they're going to try and kill Paul but I think it's actually much more likely that uh, he just prefers to conduct his business from Caesarea. Um, Festus is a man who likes working from home. Uh, He knows that the trial could be long and drawn out, and so he says that he's not going to have Paul transferred, and so they need to come down to where he is at Caesarea uh, if they want to press charges against him. But really the main point here is that, that we see God protecting Paul. God is working his purposes out behind the scenes, so that Paul can reach Rome and the gospel can continue to spread. Probably Governor Festus, he just thinks he's like choosing to hear the case at uh, Caesarea rather than Jerusalem. But yet, as we're readers of Luke, we know that there's much more going on. Behind the scenes, God is protecting Paul and working his purposes out according to his sovereign plan. I think it's a whole range of applications here for us, but um, surely at least one of them 
is that even those who aren't Christians can make all sorts of decisions that unwittingly advance the kingdom of God. And so maybe think about the company boss who decides to transfer somebody to Hong Kong. They think they're only doing it because this person is the right person for the job and uh, it'll help the, the company maybe with its business in this region. But yet little do they know that that person will end up becoming a Christian through moving to Hong Kong. And who knows what God will do with their life after that. You could probably think of lots more examples as well, where actually the decisions of someone who isn't a Christian, under God's sovereignty, uh, unwittingly advance God's plan. And for those of us who are Christians, this means that we can keep on trusting in God's sovereignty in our lives um, with great confidence. Uh, There was a really wonderful news story in the news about uh, a month back um, about a man who had died in the USA. And about 10 years previously, uh, he had discovered that there were some people in his town who couldn't afford the money for their medical prescriptions. And so every month for the last 10 years, he had been slipping the local pharmacist 100 US dollars a month to pay for anyone's prescriptions who needed it. This went on for month after month, a year after year, um, for more than 10 years. Uh, All the time, the people's prescriptions were being paid for, they were being blessed, but yet they never knew who it was who was actually paying for them. Uh, They were just told to receive it as a blessing, uh, and it all only really came to light uh, after the person's funeral. Now, I know that's not an exact analogy in, in lots of ways, but I think that does help us enter into the spirit of knowing that there's someone behind the scenes who is caring for you and watching over you. That was exactly the experience of the Apostle Paul here. Of course, there's no guarantee that we will always be rescued from our troubles like Paul was here. Plenty of examples in the Bible of where Christians are not rescued in the hour of need. But yet this does remind us that God is in control and that God cares. Even when we're not rescued from our illnesses, uh, even when we're not rescued from being bullied at school perhaps, even when we're not rescued from our immediate problems, we can be confident that God loves us on the basis of the cross. He gave Jesus for us and he's working his purposes out in accordance with his will. And so if you're in a tight spot this morning, um, you can rest in God's care. Is it possible that God may be working behind the scenes in ways that you aren't even aware of that actually show God's care and his love and his protection of you. You see, I think part of the message of this passage is that God is always there and he is always caring for us, uh, even if we are not always aware of it. Well, we see that God rescued Paul, but then we also need to move on because we also see here that God works through Paul's innocence. And I think the application for us here is that we need to keep on living a godly life. So there are actually five defences by Paul in these chapters of Acts. So we've already seen that Paul has defended himself before the Jewish crowds. He's defended himself before the Jewish Sanhedrin, sort of their grand council. He's defended himself last week, we saw, before Governor Felix. And now we come to defence number four, which is before Festus. So in verse 6, action man Festus returns to Caesarea and he immediately convenes the court to try Paul the next day. In verse 7, it seems like the atmosphere is really intense. Uh, We read that the Jews all come in and they stand around Paul. I think the uh, words indicate that it was in an intimidating manner. 
They bring many serious charges against him, but yet we also read that none of them can be proved. Paul is innocent of absolutely everything that they are charging him with. And so we come to verse 8, where the key verse in this little section, a sort of uh, executive summary of Paul's defense. I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. And so the main point here is that Paul is innocent. He's saying, I'm innocent of all the charges against me. I've kept a clean slate as far as the law is concerned. I've kept on leading a godly life. I've done nothing wrong against the temple, the Jewish law, or against uh, Caesar. Now, obviously, the first couple of these are to do with the Jews and the Jewish faith, um, the law and the temple. Uh, we've looked at these briefly before. We've seen that Paul's basic defense was that he, he was a good Jew. Uh, it's true that he'd come to believe in Jesus, but yet he still believes everything that is written in the Old Testament. Believing in Jesus, he argues, is not anti-Jewish. I'm not anti-law or anti-temple. Rather, uh, it's the fulfillment of everything that the Jews were looking forward to and uh, hoping for. It's all fulfilled in Jesus. So I now believe in, in, in him, and you should too. But really the main charge here, and the really serious one, is the last one, which is that Paul was anti-Roman. And so Paul's very clear to say here, I've done nothing wrong against Caesar. And this was a really serious one, because if Paul had spoken against Caesar, then Festus would have been obliged to put him to death for treason. So it's really important here for Paul to make clear that he's done nothing wrong against Caesar. Uh, he's kept on leading uh, a godly life. Just in order to help us understand this a little bit more, some of you might remember, this is something that Jesus was accused of as well. So in John chapter 19, verse 12, this is when Jesus was on trial before Pontius Pilate. Uh, one of the things that the crowd was calling out was anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And so uh, Jesus uh, was accused of this as well. Uh, we also see that this charge is actually leveled against the Christians elsewhere in the book of Acts too. So uh, Acts chapter 17 in Thessalonica, uh, there was a riot and the crowd was sort of calling out different things against the Christians. And one of the things that they were calling out was they are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. So you can see that uh, often they were often sort of accusing the Christians of sort of uh, believing in Jesus and saying that that sort of uh, undermines uh, Caesar's rule and their loyalty to him. And so it was really important, therefore, for Paul and the other Christians to make really clear that they weren't actually saying anything against Caesar. They weren't trying to undermine him. Because if their opponents could prove that they were undermining Caesar, then they would have ended up in big trouble. And so I think there's really sort of two competing principles going on here for us uh, that, that we can maybe learn a little bit from and take away. So I think on the one hand, we see this principle that Christians are to be good citizens of whatever country they are living in. So, you know, you might remember those times in the New Testament uh, where Christians are told clearly to submit to the governing authorities. We can think of Romans 13 or 1 Peter chapter 2, for instance. And even in the book of Acts, we see that Paul was always really tried as far as he possibly could to keep Roman laws and abide by their customs. Now, Christians are to be good citizens of whatever country they are in. But there's also another principle as well, which we see here, which is that Jesus is king. 
Uh, it is true that, okay, Jesus' kingship and Jesus' kingdom is a very different kind of kingship and kingdom to what the Romans envisaged. But yet it is true that Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. He's God's promised rescuer. He died on the cross and then he rose again. And it's actually the resurrection that really proves that Jesus is a king and that he's actually reigning now. And he's calling all people everywhere to repent and to place their trust in him. And so hopefully you can see these sort of two principles and how they are in tension here. Uh, Christians are to submit to the governing authorities. We must be careful not to say anything against Caesar. But yet on the other hand, we are to proclaim Jesus as king and live for him. He's the creator. He's the ruler. Jesus is the king uh, overall. And just as a quick aside, we know that the resurrection was right at the heart of all this debate and discussion from down in verse um, 19. So down in verse 19, um, Festus basically says that uh, none of these accusations that the Jews were making against Paul were what he expected. But rather, he says, that they concerned a dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. And he sort of throws his hands up in exasperation and says, I'm at a loss to even know how to investigate this, you know? Um, I'm not sure about you, but if you're here and you aren't a Christian and you want a good one-line summary of Christianity, then that's pretty good. A dead man named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. Uh, Why not take that away and uh, mull that over uh, in the, the coming week? Um, But Paul's basically saying is that he's innocent. Uh, Paul has continued to live a godly life. Um, I've done nothing wrong. In fact, he says later on, if I'm guilty of any of these things, then I'm willing to be punished for them. But yet, my conscience is clear. Now, again, there's lots of ways we could apply this. uh, But I'd just like to dig a little bit deeper into this idea that Christians should be careful to be good citizens uh, of where they live uh, as far as they can. Um, Like Paul... I think we should be able to say uh, that we've done nothing wrong against Caesar. Maybe more controversially, that we've not written anything online publicly against Caesar. Might be uh, one way of thinking about that, right? There are many governments in the world, you see, who are really wary of Christians. Their assumption is that Christians are under foreign influence, or Christians are bringing in different foreign ideas, or Christians are likely to be subversive or unpatriotic because of their faith in Jesus. And so part of our role as Christians is to show as far as we can that those kinds of charges are not true, even as we keep on being loyal to King Jesus as well. Remember holding those two uh, principles in tension. So as John Stott um, summarizes in his book on Acts, Luke shows the church how to behave under persecution. It must be able to show that accusations of crimes against the state and against humanity are groundless. It is innocent of offences against the law and its members are conscientious citizens and submissive to the state as far as their conscience permits them. So I think what he's really saying there is that in an increasingly hostile world, there is apologetic value in Christians being good citizens. Of course, it's not going to always be possible, and in some situations, persecution is inevitable. But what we are saying is that where possible, Christians should seek to show that some of the accusations against them, from governments maybe, are groundless. And I think this will be uh, increasingly important for us. So we can say, for instance, that Christianity is not just a Western religion. Actually, it started in the Middle East. Actually, every country almost in the whole world has its own church with its own indigenous culture. 
And then we could say, well, yes, our highest loyalty is to King Jesus, but yet this actually makes us much better citizens of a country, not worse. So generally speaking, our Christians tend to be those that work hard. Um, Christians tend to care about the poor and the needy, which actually benefits the country. Christians tend to get married and have children, but yet also still have a positive value of uh, singleness, which is a good thing. Uh, Christians tend, tend to be honest. Christians tend not to cheat. Christians tend overall to pay their taxes on time. Christians tend to contribute positively to schools and hospitals and in their neighborhoods. And of course, we're not always going to do that perfectly, and we're not going to be able to do all of those things all of the time. But my point is that Christians should actually be good news for whatever country they are in. That's a really important point to make at this particular historical moment when many governments, both in the East and in the West, are actually really suspicious of Christians and tend to be slightly wary of them. And so, just to sort of try and bring all this home a little bit more, you know, if we think of something like the cardboard collector outreach that we've got involved with a few times here at Ambassador, what are the benefits of that? Well, surely one benefit is to the cardboard collectors themselves as they receive the gift packs and as they hopefully hear the gospel. But yet there's another benefit as well, which is that hopefully those kinds of things show that Christians are actually good news for Hong Kong. King Jesus can't be all bad if people are willing to go out and actually help other people in Jesus' name. As um, Tim Keller says, the ministry of mercy then is the best advertising a church can have. It convinces a community that this church provides people with actions for their problems, not only talk. It shows the community that this church is compassionate. I think that's a really important point. Now, there's lots more that we could say, but uh, hopefully you can see that the gospel continues to advance uh, as we lead godly lives, in particular in relation to the governing authorities. However, there's one last point we need to look at, which is Paul's appeal And the application for us here is that we need to keep on following God's plans like Paul did. So let's jump back into the story. Verse 9, Festus seems to have had a change of heart. He wants to do the Jews a favor, and he now wants to send Paul back to Jerusalem uh, to be tried there after all. Now, of course, for Paul, this is the worst possible outcome. Not only is there a high chance of him being killed in Jerusalem, but this is also a backwards step for the gospel. Paul knows that Jesus has promised that he will go to Rome, and now these guys are trying to get him back to Jerusalem. Um, He knows that he needs to get to Rome, and so he goes for the one option which is left open to him. He appeals to Caesar. So verse 11, he says, If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. This was a legal right that was available to all Romans. It was a little bit like, if you like, um, appealing to the Supreme Court. Uh, You could sort of skip out all the intermediate courts in the middle and go straight to the emperor himself um, in Rome. And uh, that's what Paul does here. Uh, I think it's worth really underlining that Paul really here has no other option. Uh, Clearly, there was a sort of stalemate in um, Judea. There was no way he was going to get tried fairly in Judea. He would probably end up dead and with the mission going backwards Um, and so the only course of action left to him was to appeal to Caesar and go to Rome as a prisoner 
Um, it's worth bearing in mind this would have also worked for um, Festus as well. It sort of relieves Governor Festus of responsibility for Paul's case so he can wash his hands of the whole thing. And it also marks the end for the Jews. From now on, the Jews can have no further influence over Paul because he's no kind of property of the Romans. Um, he's out of the Jewish hands uh, once and for all. And so in verse 12, uh, Festus consults with his advisors and then declares with a very dramatic flourish, you have appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And this is a really big moment in Acts because from now on the gospel is heading straight to Rome, um, which is important uh, in the theme of the kind of whole book. So then a couple of applications for us as we draw things to a close. Um, number one, I think this shows us that it's not wrong to use legal means to advance the gospel. So I think we have a clear precedent here to use the courts when it comes to protecting Christian freedoms and advancing the gospel. Now, of course, there are totalitarian regimes in the world that have no laws guaranteeing freedom of religion or freedom of conversion. But there are many countries that do have the concept of the freedom of religion sort of written into their laws and constitutions, uh, even if it's not always consistently adhered to or applied. And where that right exists, I think this passage is saying that it is right for Christians to use those legal rights. They should use whatever legal means are at their disposal to uphold the right of Christians to meet and evangelize with freedom. And, and we need to pray for Christian lawyers. Uh, we need to pray for those organizations who exist uh, specifically to help Christians and others uh, who are discriminated against. And you can see a couple of examples there on your sheet. So organizations like Open Doors or the Barnabas Fund, both of whom who work globally to uphold the principle of uh, freedom of religion. And, and actually not only freedom of religion for Christians, but actually uh, freedom of religion for everyone else as well. And specifically to help uh, Christians who are persecuted. And if you're interested in the uh, UK, then there's also a link to the Christian Institute there who kind of um, do a similar work legally uh, in the UK. Maybe here in Hong Kong, um, just say that the pandemic restrictions were beginning to come to an end. This is not what, what happened, but just imagine if this was what happened. Pandemic restrictions were coming to an end. Uh, restaurants were open. Um, movie theatres were open. Ocean Park was open. Uh, massage parlours were open. Uh, playing Mahjong was allowed, uh, karaoke was open, mosques were open, temples were opened, but yet churches remained closed. Would Christians in Hong Kong have been justified in using legal means so that we could try to start meeting together again? Well, I think the answer that this passage would give to that question would be yes, right? Yes, we would be justified in appealing to Caesar and um, doing that. There's another application for us here, which is that the Apostle Paul is clearly acting in line with God's plan, and so we should as well. So way back in Acts 9 verse 15, Jesus had said about Paul, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings. So right back uh, from, from his conversion probably is the idea of Paul um, giving testimony before the emperor in Rome. Um, a few weeks ago, we looked at Acts 23, verse 11, uh, when Jesus said to Paul, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And so Paul knows that it's God's plan to get him to Rome. Um, 
so that he can tell the emperor himself about the good news of Jesus Christ. In Acts, Rome, remember, represents the ends of the earth. It represents the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth, uh, right at the heart of the Roman Empire. And so Paul here is also self-consciously following what he knows to be God's plan. It's exactly the same for us. Uh, We may not be a groaned-breaking apostle uh, like Paul was, but yet each of us has a role to play in God's plan to spread the gospel to the nations. We may not be apostles, but we are all messengers, and we are all witnesses to what Jesus has done for us. So Matthew 28, verse 19, says that we are to go and make disciples. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, says that we will receive power when the Spirit comes on us to be Christ's witnesses. 1 Peter 3, verse 15, says that Christians should always be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within them. And uh, Romans 10, verse 17, says that people need to hear their message, and so we need to be those who speak to them. And so we may not be exactly like Paul this morning, but yet we do have our marching orders from Jesus. You know, we spend so much time often worrying about God's precise will for our lives. Does God want us to be doing this thing over here or this thing over there? But yet, actually, God has made his will for each of us very, very clear indeed. Make disciples. Be my witnesses. Always be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have. And so, how are we getting on with these tasks? What's your attitude to these tasks? Are we so consumed maybe with our health or our finances or our career that while making disciples, uh, it never just uh, reaches something that's a priority for us. It just never really crosses our minds. Uh, Do we think that making disciples, well, that's somebody else's role? Maybe that person over there. It's their role to be involved with helping disciples. It's not something that I need to actually do uh, or be involved with. Why don't we... Do this more. I mean, maybe one idea, uh, you know, you can just start very easily and simply by asking somebody else at church, perhaps, how they became a Christian, perhaps somebody in your small group, maybe. Uh, Or maybe just uh, asking what they're struggling with at the moment, if there's particular things that you can actually be praying for. Uh, All of of those are ways that we're actually proactively seeking to disciple each other and just uh, seeing uh, how the conversation goes and how things develop from there. At the end of the day, making disciples is really just trying to do somebody else um, some spiritual good uh, as far as we have opportunity. That was really the heartbeat of the Apostle Paul here. Paul loved God, and Paul's love for people led to him wanting to make disciples and seeing people around him grow in Christ. And God wants that to be our heartbeat as well, uh, both as individuals and also as uh, a church. Well, um, There's much more we could say, as usual, um, but let's just close. Uh, As we've often seen in the book of Acts, there's a real encouragement here for us, I think. Once again, it looks like the gospel has hit a brick wall. It looks like it's back to, to Jerusalem for poor old Paul. But yet, once again, God continues to work so that his gospel continues to advance. And just look what God uses. God uses a pagan ruler. He uses the integrity of his servant Paul. And he uses the legal structures of the Roman state. How great God is. What a great God we have that he's able to use all those things and more to extend his kingdom. 
And then, are you in a tight spot this morning? Maybe facing some particular, something particularly difficult? Well, if so, you could do a lot worse than heed the message of this passage. Trust in God's sovereignty. Keep on leading a godly life. And keep on committing yourself to God's plans. Keep on discipling others. Keep on looking for opportunities to share Christ with those around you, uh, even in the midst of the difficulties that you are going through. And rest in the assurance that God really is at work, um, just like he was here. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to give thanks for your word to us this morning. We just want to give thanks for this example of how we see you working in Paul's life uh, in all sorts of ways, uh, even when he was in a very tight spot. And so, Father, if we find ourselves facing difficult situations this morning, we give thanks that we can trust in you. Help us to trust in your sovereignty, uh, caring for us and working behind the scenes. And help us to keep on living godly lives as well, maybe uh, especially in relation to the governing authorities. And help us to stay committed to your plans uh, to take the gospel to the nations, um, maybe starting off uh, with the people that we rub shoulders with each day. And uh, we ask all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.